Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. All right. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another installation of John and Jordan on Justice. We're tremendously honored today, all of you are, because we have the privilege of speaking with Joe Freed, who's joining us, and uh, I think he needs no introduction, so we'll give him a short one at that. Uh, Joe Freed is a tremendous trial lawyer who focuses predominantly on trucking litigation based out of Atlanta, although he has a national reach in his practice. Joe's got a unique background, at least in my estimation, given that he's seen truck crashes not just as a plaintiff's lawyer, but he's seen them as a police officer before he became a lawyer. Uh, he used to happen upon many and many crash scenes, and so he has that unique perspective. He also served as a part-time judge, and he went to Oglethorpe, which is I could probably throw a football to from my house. And uh, He's done a tremendous amount in his career to be proud of, and I think I'm most grateful to not only just have him on as a guest today, but for all the information that he shared with John and I over the past five years or so, he's been a tremendous asset. So without further ado, Joe, welcome on and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Jordan, for that kind, those kind words. I'm sure to let people down from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's start by letting them down. No, um, listen, many lawyers, they sign up a case, any case, it could be a regular automobile accident. It could be a commercial motor vehicle accident, slip and fall, you name it. Uh, and their objective is focused on the plaintiff that they have signed up, who's their client, and rightfully so. Um, and I think many lawyers aspire to achieve justice, not only for the client that they represent, but for maybe others that might come down the path, for example, to effectuate change, to ensure that somebody else doesn't find themselves in a similar situation. And no matter how often we aspire to do that, it's a hard thing to accomplish. But you're someone who's actually done it, I know you do some legislative efforts and lobbying efforts in Washington, but I'm talking about on like a company specific trucking company specific uh, settlement things. Don't you sometimes put in non-monetary terms in your settlements? And if so, can you kind of elaborate on that? Sure. And, and thanks for, thanks for bringing it up. It's one of the things I, I, I like talking about with other plaintiffs lawyers um, because, you know, from, from my perspective and maybe it's my sort of law enforcement prosecutorial background I view every case as, as a case where I'm trying to do justice for the client. First and foremost, that's my first obligation. But very close, right beside that, I feel like I am serving almost in the, in the capacity as a, as a private attorney general to try to effectuate some, some meaningful change because you know we can't go back and change that, that intersection accident that happened. We can, we can maybe get some justice for the client um, but we can't go backwards and change that negative event. So we look in all of our cases as we're looking for what sort of what was the systemic problem that brought about the wreck. So it's usually it's usually much bigger than the truck driver, right? It usually has to do with a training issue, or it has to do with an equipment issue, or or it has to do with a, a culture issue in the in the trucking company that's at play. Um, and, the, and, the, and the same can be true, by the way. I mean, I, I handled a case last year that involved a little boy who was crushed in a revolving restaurant. Um, we looked for the same ways to kind of fix things systemically. So, you know, you, you mentioned going to D.C. and I just got back from D.C. Well, anybody who's ever gone there 
knows the frustration of dealing with either the legislative branch or the regulatory branch in whatever arena they're going up there. It's very, very difficult to get anything done. It's a very slow process and it's just kind of ridiculous. So what we started doing some years ago is looking within each case, we identify the systemic problem and then we make it a term or a condition of resolving the case. If the case is gonna settle, can't really do this at trial, um, but if your case is gonna be, be settled, then you make a, what you've called a non-monetary term, which, it, which can be, in the cases I've handled, I'm, I'm responsible through my clients um, for, I think at this point, well over 100,000 trucks on the roadway that have, that, that have motor carriers who've committed to having automatic emergency braking on their vehicles when they historically had not had that provision as part of their, part of their work. We've had cases where we've required trucking companies to buy three years worth of driver monitoring services in the form of something like Lytics or Zonar or something that monitors real time their driver's conduct when they used to not have that. That's a big safety issue. We've had companies where we've required them to install forward and driver facing cameras in their trucks as part of a resolution. And we usually have them pay for it. Uh, and then, and you know, it's very hard to regulate it after the fact, but we, so we, we try to get them to pay for it all up front. Um, and, and, and there are some other, we've, we've had, we've had, we've implemented certain types of fatigue related training that wasn't there before. Uh, we've done cases where we've had our clients do a video uh, where we've had the companies agree that from there forward forever, that video would be part of their orientation practice so that the, so that our client story would would provide a meaningful um, a meaningful uh, reminder that you know whatever the training issue is it's not just a it's not just a something to let go in one ear and out the other or just to know for a test but it has very real world uh, you know implications if they fail to adhere to those those rules. So those are the kinds of things that we do. We're trying to monitor, we're trying to deal with speed, we're trying to deal with inattention. We've had lots of companies institute cell phone policies of various types. Uh, those are the kind of things we look to do. And, and where frankly- does, Where does confidentiality, I'm sorry, I'm just curious, because you know in our practice, I find that there's an increasing trend, I find one of concern, which is that the defendants or their insurers are really trying to force confidentiality down our throat, non-disparagement confidentiality, and then even like liquidated damages provisions are trying to slip in there. Obviously, when you're trying to effectuate change on a corporate level through an individual settlement, do you find that that's a, a conflict point in the negotiations or do they push back at all? Or Well, I think confidentiality is always a conflict point because they're putting us in a conflict, us, the lawyer, in a conflict. They're putting the client in a conflict saying, ultimately, we're going to pay you what you're asking for or what you're willing to accept, but only if you agree to confidentiality. And, um, and you know, I mean, I, I wish that were illegal, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, because, because there are times when us, and I know we've had this conversation before, where we as the lawyer really would love to push back because the issue is bigger than the case, right. but we can't because the client wants the case resolved. So ultimately, you have to take your lead from the client. The client is the boss, and the client's needs are 
um, are what needs to be first and foremost in there. But these, even if you have a confidentiality provision, the, 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 the release can be written in a way that allows for um, some aspect of enforceability of these kinds of things. Like if you don't do this, then the, then the aspect, this aspect of the settlement no longer is confidential. Um, but that's why what I mentioned before is a lot of times what I try to do is I get the companies to pay for something in advance. And right. so if, if it's going to be, if it's going to be forward facing and, and driver facing cameras, I, I make them produce to me that they have bought, they have 180 trucks, they've bought 180 units, and they've bought a service like Lytics, for instance, it's going to monitor those cameras for three years, and they have to provide the receipt for having uh, done it. Now, if they go a month after and turn all that stuff off, it's not that easy to enforce. I, I recognize that. But, you know, our world, one of the things that's great about the plaintiff's bar, and I hope that I've been a positive um, voice for this and influence on this is we share, we share information. So can you imagine um, one of those trucking companies that made a deal with me on how they're going to resolve a death case or a serious injury case. And then I find out that they, that they through another case, because you know how it is, we're sharing information constantly. You and I get on the phone regularly to talk about cases, right? We have listservs that we communicate on. So if, imagine that company lets the contract expire and they stop doing it. I mean, it's kitty bar the door the next time around come trial time. Yeah. Right. So we, th th there are ways to enforce it, but I see what you're talking about as a challenge. And by the way, real, real important point for those lawyers who may be considering doing this and thinking about it by and large, our clients love that we do this. They're even in, I've had situations where my clients have agreed to supplement the cost of doing it for companies that didn't couldn't really afford to do it that we were getting insurance money and we would supplement the cost of doing it because it was so important to them to know that their loss isn't going to be meaningless other than just money they they would love to be involved in the aspect of creating a meaningful and lasting change yeah i don't i don't think there's any question that um clients want to make sure that when their case is over that they might be the last one to ever be in that position. I've, I've heard it directly from their mouth multiple times. Um, and every time a similar case comes down the path later, I'm always discouraged at least a bit, but you know, trucks are everywhere. And let, this is not an indictment on the trucking industry because they're critically important to our economy and truckers are amazing people. And it's a very challenging career. And I know from actually going to one of your recent, you know, breakfast and learn sessions where you had truckers come in and people who train truckers come in. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly challenging job environmentally other road I'm, you know drivers on the roadway i'm out there next week i'm actually i teach at a truck driving school now it's part of my in case this law stuff doesn't work out for me <laughs> i'm, I'm going to be a driver trainer and um, so i'm a i'm a driver trainer and i'm going to be out next week teaching teaching truck driving school but uh, i i agree with everything you've you've said i think that, you know that I, sometimes people make the mistake of thinking I am anti-trucking or anti-trucking industry, quite the opposite. Um, I am just against dangerous practices, right. but I, I represent lots of truck drivers. And usually what I find in very significant crashes is that the, that not usually often the trucker is a victim of a bad system and the trucker gets blamed for the crash because they're the most immediate uh, thing to look at, 
But if you look to scratch the surface and you're willing to look, continue to investigate, what you'll find is equipment problems or systemic problems at the corporate level that set up the situation for that truck crash to occur. And that the trucker was just trying to be out there to, to earn a living, reasonable living for their, for their family. trucking cases and when I went to the um, I think it's the what is the American Academy of Trucking Attorneys you had your your annual symposium where I actually recently got to go in Austin Texas which for, for anyone who's considering trucking cases and wants to, to do trucking cases this is a program where you need to go it has the best legal minds in the trucking industry about things you may not think about and so when you talked about you know because we met, didn't really have much trucking experience, but we, we kind of used the rules of the road to establish the rules of the drivers and show how they don't get the training that they needed. They don't have the proper time systems in place, you know, and, and there was an example given in one of the cases where it was like each level of management said, oh, well, that's not my job. That's his job. And he's like, well, that's not my job. It's their job. And you know, what I didn't know and what I know now is that, you know, obviously the regulations, the federal regulations require that they have to make sure that their drivers know all of these roles and responsibilities and have to train them. And so when you talked about these systemic failure cases, so it's not just like, yes, there is driver negligence, but when you get the company and you show it's a, a company-wide system failure, it kind of changes the dynamic with the jury. Right. So it's not just it definitely does. It de yeah. definitely, definitely, definitely does. I mean, when you think about it, um, if you're on a jury, uh, you're 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 dealing directly in front of you with a wreck that's happened already, an injury or or a loss that's happened already. You can't change that. Right. You can't change the past. You can try to do justice to make up for the harms and losses. But it's but it but when we can give a jury the ability to look and say, look, your verdict is going to affect the system. It's going to change the system. Then I think, I think human beings and most jurors are human beings joke. Um, I've met a few that I've questioned along the way, but um, they, they want to know, I mean, if you were on a jury, wouldn't you want to be able to make a big difference? Right. Uh, and the big difference is to be able to go to the systemic level where most people never have the opportunity to make a systemic change in their community that affects the world most people never have that unless they're on a jury it's quite yeah. it's quite a big nobody ever wants to sit on a on a as a juror right and then when they finally sit then they take on this tremendous responsibility this altruism just rings true to them and they want to affect change it's interesting well people people in the world think you jordan and you um john and i are the powerful people the, the truth is we're not i mean right. we we need real regular people who are willing to forego whatever the challenges are that allow them to come into a jury and sit there. Otherwise, change doesn't happen. Uh, it's it's the ultimate equalizer. You know, I, I, that's what made me go to law school. I mean, as a young police officer, spent, I spent time in courtrooms, and I and I remember just this this feeling of hallowed, you know, like looking around, saying, "Wow, important things happen here." Yeah. And I also remember thinking the kind of lawyer you've got makes a difference. And, and very clearly uh, recognizing that justice 
is not at all blind, nor is it equal. Right. Uh, and so that's the reality we live in. Let me ask you something, because you've been practicing a while. You've been doing, I think, trucking. I don't want to say exclusively, but at least specialized with a focus on it for coming up on 20 years or so. But before trucking cases, I know you used to focus on product liability, automotive cases. And um, you have one of your recent sessions I was at, you actually brought in someone you've worked with who helps you basically model uh, or, you know, probably doing some scene uh, recreation now, but back then doing some remodeling of you know the vehicle that exploded and where the engine was and all that. So you've seen the uh, change, the innovation of technology and how it, uh, how it changes the efficacy of advocate of lawyering, right? Your ability to, to show the jury the, the defective product, as opposed to just talking about it or to show the jury, the, the animation of how the crash happened instead of just using words. Can you kind of talk to us over your career? Cause you've tried tons of cases over the time, uh, how you feel like technology has helped either augment, you know, your advocacy or, or help it in any way. Well, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I have a love hate relationship with technology because I think that the most important thing that happens in a courtroom is the human interaction, the connection that you and I would have when we are in each other's eyes in a uniquely human um, moment. And that can't happen if I've got you looking at a PowerPoint slide at that moment. And that can't happen if I'm hiding behind a big animation. At the same time, what is true is that increasingly we're able to take people into the reality of the situation. Um, what I learned when I went to the trial lawyers college years ago in 2001, um, I learned techniques to do real world live recreations where we would ask the jury to use their imagination, where we would put a chair over here and say, imagine that's the cab of the truck. And we would put another chair over here and say, that's the car. And they're coming at each other like this. And I put somebody in the seat here and I put somebody in the seat there. And, you know, this is what we did when we were kids, at least when I was a kid, that this was playground. This was, we would use our imagination and human beings are great at doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so now we've evolved into, I can almost hologramically or holographically um, recreate things. I can, I built a model for the case that involved the, um, the restaurant that was, it was, it was a turning, it was a, a revolving restaurant that crushed a little boy. I, I built a model that was going to allow me to put, um, uh, what do they call it, AR headsets um, on people, and they were going to be able to walk around the scene and move and look under things, and it would all be real to them without actually going to the scene, because we were told by the judge that we weren't going to ever going to be able to go to the scene and turn this on because of safety concerns and whatever. So the world has evolved an awful lot, but, but I, I would tell people embrace the technology, but remember that it is, it's a tool to be used to connect and explain and teach. We are best as lawyers when we're in a teacher role, mm -hmm. but don't let the technology supplant the human connection. That's a mistake in my opinion. Uh, for whatever that's worth. Maybe I'm too old school, but I, I'm, I see, I see people moving more toward a sort of a, we, oh, we don't, we don't, the lawyer as technician, the lawyer pushes buttons, 
and this happens. The lawyer pushes another button and this happens. And I think that you lose at the end of the day, I have to, you have to stand in front of real people and say, here is what justice requires to be done. Right. And if I have not taken the time to form a relationship and put myself into a position of credibility with those people, why the hell should they listen to me? Right. Right. And, and I think so. you, yeah, you make a really good point because, you know, myself and Jordan talk about this a lot is about being the most credible person in the room. And when you're yeah. given that opportunity to teach, you build credibility, right? Your, your, when you went to school, your teacher who was teaching you on a particular subject had that credibility with you. And, you know, when you talk about having them imagine the scene, why is it that every single person says, well, I read the book, they go see the movie, and it's never as good? Because when you're reading the book, you as the individual are imagining the story as you make it, right? And a movie is never going to give you what you can put in your own mind as your own imagination. So I think to your, to your point, like jurors, they imagine what is going on. They're filling the story with how they see it, and it might cause a more visceral reaction to them because they're filling that crash. They're filling what those two, you know— and, you know, things that are happening and, and we try to do it. I, we, we just recently tried a case and I talked about someone walking into the, to a hospital, the doors open, feeling the coldness of the room, you know, you know, elevator doors shutting, you know, so you, you provide those visual cues and allow the jury to, to kind of fill that story. And I think it's well, pretty, it's, pretty it's, effective. It's, it is the key. I think you're hitting on, this is my world that you just touched on it, it, so eloquently that's where I spend all my time. How do I bring people into the key aspects of the story? What do I want them to feel? I mean, what, when you watch a movie, I don't know, do you go, do either of you go see a Top Gun yet? The new, I, the new Top Gun? I yeah. haven't had a chance to see you it. You have to go see it. At least I thought it was a great movie, but, but uh, you know, any, any movie, think of a sad movie that you saw that, that brought tears to your eyes. Why you you're just watching particles of light reflected onto a board. Why are you getting sad? How do you know you're supposed to get sad right then in the, in the story? And, and how, does, how does Hollywood do that? Well, you know how to get sad because you've been sad before. Right. So what we know is that human story triggers your human story. And the most powerful human story is going gonna, is gonna to be one that resonates with people. You know, so that's why what we're talking about is so important is at the end of the day, I need the jurors to be, you know, we're not supposed to have the jurors be in the shoes of somebody. That's called a violation of the golden rule. But, but, um, but that's really what is happening at a base level if you tell the story the, the proper way. Right. Um, and, and, and not in an inappropriate way, but in a proper way, uh, if right. that makes sense. Well, Funny it, you it, say golden rule. I always think in law school, I took a trial evidence class with Roy Black, and he used to say, you get too close to the golden rule, and the judge will say, "Stop putting them in your shoes." And Roy used to say, "That's fine, Mr. General. If you were fly on his shoulder that day, this is what you might have seen. You know, <laughs> just get you got to bring people right there. Otherwise, it doesn't hit home. You know." Well, it's true, but even even when you know, I talk, I do a lot of talking these days about value in cases because um, you know, I spent my whole career fighting with what's how do you translate pain or loss into dollars. I mean, it's like the most unnatural, inhuman thing 
in the world. And we all, I think a lot of us get it wrong and, and we become our own limiters in that. But, you know, it, 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 it um, when I tell people, when they say, well, I think there, you know, I think that a wrongful death case, you know, should be X number of dollars. I always tell them to golden rule themselves in the process. You know, you, you, that's when you, that's when you should be going in and saying, what if this happened to the person you love most, you're most responsible for, who is most vulnerable to you? What if it happened to them? Then what's the case worth? Yeah. And why should it be worth one cent less for this person over here? Yeah, sometimes the, the largest measure of injustice comes in hindsight and you hear these stories where firm ABC, you know, gets a resolution and let's say a commercial trucking case uh, for 5 million. And for that firm, it's like this historic banner waving moment. And for that yeah. individual family or plaintiff, it's, it's some recompense, but in the right hands with somebody, it was probably a 50. Right. That could have been the co-counsel fee for the, uh, for the case. Exactly. handled. And, and I don't mean that it shouldn't be about the fee, but you're hitting on it. And, 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 you know, we are, we are the limiter, even me, I'm the limiter, you are the limiter. We are, we are the limiter of our case in terms of the value. Um, it's what we say, ultimately, if we are the, what, what John said earlier, the credible party in the courtroom, that's the payoff for living credibly in the courtroom is to be able in, in jurisdictions where you're allowed to do this. And you guys both know there are some that you're not allowed to, right. but where you're allowed to suggest an actual number to the jurors, that's the payoff. For being credible is they'll listen to you and you tell them this is the right number but if you don't ask for it because you have some limiters inside of you that don't let you ask for a number that's here because you believe it should be here then what the jury's never gonna even if you go try to quote sell this number right it ain't gonna work because one thing that i've found over and over and i'm sure you guys have too jurors have great we can call them truth meters or BS meters, right? They're the same. Right. And, and, and it's at an energy level that they're feeling this and you can, the words are here, but your energy is here. Not only are you going to not get to this, but you may not get to this because people are, are, are feeling the incongruence of your position. And, and, and so now you're a liar to them. You're an exaggerator to them. And or even you worse, got, you're you're a plaintiff's lawyer on a billboard or whatever they're, you know, yeah. they've created in their mind some greedy guy, you know. Yeah. You play right by the way, it. I mean, we don't have to create it. That's already there. That's already yeah. there for them. I mean, we yes. are behind. I tell people all the time, and to John's point about being credible, I tell people all the time we have to be shockingly credible. Right. We have to shock people with our straightforwardness. Like we need them to say as quickly and as early on, hopefully in jury selection. Oh my God! I can't believe that guy just admitted that. Right, right. And and and, and the world thinks that that's going to make us lose, when the reality is that's the only thing that makes us win. Right, is that you're willing to be the, the the degree to which you're willing to be vulnerable, real, and shockingly credible, translates to a big result at the end because well, of the credit. I think that's all true, and 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 in jury selection, if and even in opening statements, you, you got to talk about the bad parts of your case. You know the things that you're fearful about, and and I think that helps the jury recognize you're not just selling. It's all them. I talk about, right? You're not just selling the jury your side of the case. Um, is is and Joe, I should know the answer to this question. Michael Leiserman, I think, is the Zen lawyer. Is he, is he your partner 
in up he's there in not, Georgia. He's, he, he and I are, uh, we, we have all kinds of relationships. Right. He and I started the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys together. Um, so we're co-founders of that. We're good friends. Um, we have been business partners before because we formed a, a law firm with another lawyer named Joe Camerlango in Florida, you know, right. um, and so we were partners in that firm for a while. Michael has bowed out of that at this point. So we have a, we have a friendship that's been a partnership and that certainly, um, you know, for both of us, the Academy is kind of a legacy move. Right. Um, super proud of that organization, but yes, that's a long answer to your question. Well, and, and I apologize earlier. If I said the name of the organization wrong, you should have corrected me. Oh, that's I think, okay. Don't I, I think I said, I said AATA instead of the Academy of truck accident attorneys, but um, so I apologize for that, but he, I was listening to a podcast that he was on and it may have been on trial lawyer nation and what he is might be the most insightful individual that I've ever listened to. And what he was talking about when you talked about damages, right? It's like, why is this when you talk about how do we equate pain and suffering and what they went through to money, right? How do, how do we do that? And there was two things that he, that I thought was, I thought was he great. Well, one you know, your case, it's not a spine injury case. That's not a case. It's not a, you know, a broken arm case or a torn shoulder. That's not the kind of case. It, it's a, you know, a young man can't spend the time with his child, right? You, you take right. it out of the, the, the idea of that it's an injury. No, it's a human being. And what is that human story? And then he talked about changing the perception of the loss, right? We talked about, in, in, you know, harms and losses, right? We talked about, you mentioned it earlier, and that's, come, you know, from Damages 3 for David Ball, we talk about harms and losses. But what he actually flips it and says, it's not about, it's not a loss, it's something that was taken, right? You know, Keith Mitnick talks about this, he talks about that, and he put what's it in a... Right, what's been taken from you, because think of this, he, he gave this example, You're in, you, you lose your cell phone, Right? Like, it's terrible. You know, you lost your cell phone, you were out with friends, you lost it. That has a different reaction than you're out and somebody takes your phone, right? Like, it's taken from you. You mean if you're you, grateful either way because you're free? No, yeah, right. But, but I mean, the idea that if you have a loss, if you lose your phone, like, jerk, could be like, well, you guys kind of lost it. That's kind of, you know, could be your fault. But if it was taken from you, you know, that changes that reaction from the jury. And I think that, you know, building in your human story, talking to them and, and building in that, you know, what's been taken with that human story really allows the jury, you know, coupled with the, the shocking credibility to really do good things. And, and well, you're, you're hitting on a lot of a lot. I mean, these are the places where I live. Right. right I mean, this right. is, um, you know, words matter, but how you say the words probably matters even more because you've you've both, I'm sure, seen lawyers and even people presenting in different ways where they can't even get the words out of their mouth, but it's right. pure emotion that's seeping out of every pore in their body. And that you find your, your eyes wet and your cheeks wet from the tears flowing down and you want to reach out and you want to help that person. That's where you want the jurors to be. Yeah. Right. So it's yeah. all about how people feel. And you're right. People feel different if something is taken away from them versus what they lost it. Um, and, but, but I still think, you know, no matter what, and you guys are in the same boat as me right. at the end of the day, there is a disconnect between pain and, and 
suffering and loss that we're talking about, the losses, the law cause, the damages right. that are that are non-economic damages. And well, make- let me ask you, because not every case is going to go to trial, obviously. Yeah. Uh, many do. But for those that don't, how do you communicate the number and the reason for the number to insurers or defense counsel, you know, the go between, how do you, what, what do you find to be some of the most effective methods to get them to bring the proper money to the table to save your client, the uh, stress of a trial? Well, for, first of all, as, as I know you do, cause we've talked about this before, every case needs to be prepared as if it's going to go to trial and the, the easiest, the quickest way to get it to not go to trial is to be prepared for it to go to trial. It's the ones that you don't prepare, you think you're going to settle. Those are the ones they end up making you try. Um, so that's one one piece. But so the, the answer to your question, though, is still still from my perspective, it still it still has to do with this humanity, right? I want my case to jump off the table um, to whoever the decision makers are. I want this to be the case that they can't leave on their desk at the office. It's the one that they think about late at night. And so I have to make it human. And so what I have found is that it's the same. It's the same, you know, at the end of the day, you have jaded people in these roles as, you know, claims managers, claims adjusters, but they are human beings. And our job is to find out where their humanity is mm-hmm. and, to, and to touch that humanity through our case. And so it's, it's about being credible again, because they've got even stronger BS meters than anybody else there. I mean, so imagine you're sitting there at the, at a mediation and you're about to open your mouth for the first time, the mediator, the mediator has, has set this thing up, has done their little spiel uh, that, that anybody who's been in a mediation knows it's, uh, you know, how we're here, we're going to, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And now they could, they go and Jordan is now going to talk to you uh, from the plaintiff's side. What do you think the people on the other side who are the decision makers, do you think they're poised to agree with you or disagree with whatever comes out of your mouth? Well, if it's me, definitely not. Yeah. Both ears are closed. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so you have to know that on the front end. What if you were to start off by telling them how great a job they've done working up their case? They're poised to disagree with you. What does that do emotionally, psychologically, you know, in the case, if you are pounding your chest and saying, I can't wait to try this case, then why are you getting mad at them when they're not putting the kind of money that you want at, at the mediation? I see one of the biggest things, problems on our side is we present an incongruent incongruence between our words, our actions, and our emotions. So why would you, if you really wanted to try a case, why would you ever get angry at mediation when they when they say no? But I'm not answering your question directly. Yeah, you are. Well, the direct yeah. way to answer your question, I think, on how do you make the case jump off the table is that you make it more human than any other case that they've got. It's got, it's, it, it's, it's at that human level that the cases are meaningful in the same way that good movies and good plays and good books, you know, when you make it human, they can't help but see the humanity. And even if they're jaded and you come across, I think the reason I started the answer the way I started the answer is you gotta, you gotta be even more shockingly, credible with those jaded people. So you come in and you say, here's what sucks about my case that I wish wasn't the truth, but it's the truth. You know, I know you guys hate my doctor because you view him as a plaintiff, you know what? Um, And there's some truth to that, but you know, 
he presents well at the trial. And uh, that's part of why he's here. Yeah, truth at every step. And I, I, at every I love step. I, and, you know, I got a front row ticket early in my career when I just tra- transitioned from doing almost exclusively criminal defense and John had been doing the plaintiff side for a while. I got to sit in on a mediation where John did exactly what you said. Yeah. Basically, brutal honesty and humanizing a client. He took them from 50,000 to 2 million in five minutes, oh, five minutes, five hours in a case where I just thought there was a 0% chance of getting the other side there. Well, how about on the criminal side? You, you probably, you saw, you saw juror, you saw jurors walk people who killed other people because they were honest and truthful. And you saw them convict people who probably shouldn't have been convicted because they couldn't be honest for some reason. Right. So there's a magic to telling the truth. The judge I clerked for when I came out of school used to say to me, there's a magic in the courtroom of the truth. It rings loud and it rings clear. And that's true. I agree. Now, let me ask you, because this is something that I, I think about because I have this perhaps quasi dystopian view of the world. But in this in this particular example, I actually think it could be a benefit. Trucking is critical to our economy. We've talked about that. You know, at the end of the day, I lean pro trucking. I would never say I'm anti-trucking, but I watched an interesting documentary a couple of months ago about the automation of trucking, basically, and whether or not we're going to get to driverless cabs. And if that's feasible, you know, Um, you obviously have, I don't want to say the inside track, but I mean, you see it probably more intensely than anybody else. Where do you see trucking, you know, five, 10 years from now, do you see the drivers even being a, a necessary component or is it all going to be basically products liability litigation? With systems well, that went wrong. I think eventually we will get to a place where there are few, if any, drivers. I, I think it's longer than a five or 10 year window. I think what's going to happen is you're going to start to see, um, you're going to start to see, some people call it platooning or caravanning, where you basically have a, you, you have uncertain routes that are dedicated routes. You have a combination of technology. Technology might be driving three or four or five trucks but that, that caravan or that platoon is being led by a manned um, driver. And so the, the, the other trucks are taking their lead, not only from technology, but also, also from a combination of that with whatever the driver ahead does. Um, and I think that you will see certain dedicated routes that are on uh, that, that become driverless. Um, but what's, you know, what's, what's bigger to me than the driverless is the technology that's available right now that affects safety. That if, I mean, if we can get to a point where automatic emergency braking and speed limiters are used on trucks, we can let go of almost all the other regulations. I mean, we don't, I don't care about fatigue as much anymore. I don't care about a lot of the regs anymore because I've got a technology backing up the driver that can step in and effectuate a save, if you will, from, and that's what I see first, is we have to first perfect and get those, those kind of technologies moving forward. Um, and that's what we're, that's what I was in DC about, is to try to explain that both to regulators and to, and to um, politicians, that we have the technology right now that can avoid a lot of these crashes. You know, and, and we, we just we've just seen a huge increase in the last couple of years, uh, fatalities and and um, and serious injury crashes have gone through the roof um, from the, on the trucking side. So it's we can counteract a lot of this. I know for for a lot of people out there that do plaintiff's work, you know, um, 
people look forward. I'll, to, I'll say look forward to representing someone who's been in a trucking case. I think it presents a lot of interesting intellectual challenges uh, as a lawyer. But one thing you, I don't want to say always say, but you definitely beat the drum and you're absolutely correct to do so is that trucking cases are an entirely different animal than, you know, regular uh, motor vehicle crashes. And I don't, I don't need to belabor that point too much. I think that's pretty clearly established. But one thing I do want to explain is um, associating yourself formally or informally with people like Joe. And there's, there's many of you out there who are just, you know, you have a wealth of experience. Um, and I think I saw on your website, more than 90% of your cases are people bringing them to you, asking to work with you. And I think that speaks volumes for who you are and the value you can bring to a client. But I have personally been in the situation where sometimes you just pick up the phone and, and you know, you're like, hey, I don't need to co-counsel this with you. Let me give you a few beats out of my playbook. And I, we at John and I have taken those and taken a case we probably would have fucked up candidly because we weren't, we didn't know where to look for something. I didn't know I was allowed to curse on your, on your thing here. <laughs> well, you're allowed to do whatever you want on here. I've been all buttoned up over here and uh, saying <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but I mean it. And, and you've really, you know, you're so free with sharing information, this rising tides kind of theory, lifting all boats on the plaintiff side. And you made a tremendous impact in our client's life. I mean, that's the short end to the story here. You increase the value of a case we're working on by millions of dollars just by sharing like, hey, you should look for this and look for that. So let me ask you this. You do a lot of lecturing. You obviously do a lot of sharing. Your firm puts out newsletters, monthly case law updates, you know, breakfast, lunch and learns. You're traveling the speaking circuit. So you're you're constantly sharing. Let me ask you, how good does it feel to see that you are not just single handedly, but you're playing a big role in elevating the level of advocacy for commercial trucking cases around the country. Well, look, that's what I, you know, a lot of people, you know, uh, you think about what's, what's your epitaph, right? That's really what I hope mine is at the end of the day is that he, he, um, he was innovative, but he didn't hoard that, you know, he was innovative. And then he, when something worked, he put it out in the world. I mean, my concept, my concept very frankly is that, you know, early on, I had to make that decision. And you're right, 20 years ago, it's been almost 20 years when I started to really focus on this. And I saw, you know, at that time, there weren't, you never saw a billboard. You know, nobody was a trucking lawyer. People laughed at me when I'd said I was a trucking lawyer at the beginning. Um, they're probably still laughing at me for other reasons now. But but the, at, at, at the end of the day, look, it feels good yeah. to know that's my, that's what I hope my legacy is, is that, you know, but what I was getting ready to say is my, my, early decision-making was I've got this strategic advantage over other lawyers because I've spent ridiculous amounts of time studying this industry, the whole regulatory schema surrounding it. I can hoard this. And for the rest of my career, I can make a shit ton of money for myself and my clients. And that could be my life. Or if I really believe in what I say, which is it's about, it should be about safety. Then the only way to do that is to build an army because I can't make a difference by myself, mm -hmm. but I now know, I mean, the Academy of Truck Acts Attorneys now has a thousand members. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable to me. And they get, I mean, when you come to my, my programs, you get not watered down BS. You get practical stuff that you can bring back to your office and put into effect right away. Mm -hmm. So sure, I'd love to work with people and there's plenty of cases I get offered, but I spend more than half of my life. I have two employees in my office who do nothing more than than respond to people asking for for stuff that we have. Um, that, that's what I pay them a lot of money to just be responsive. So yeah, it feels good um, to be a part of that and to know I know 
I get to go to sleep at night and know that I've made a difference. Um, and it feels good. I mean, and you know, it kind of feels a little bit self-congratulatory to say that because there's still an awful lot of work to do, but it feels good for me to go now and see trucking programs out there and see people talking about things that I know I'm the one who developed and put out there. Right. And it's been forgotten that I'm the guy who's put it out there. And, and that's fine with me, you know, and I, I just love looking at it and saying, I remember speaking for the first time on the commercial driver's license manual. Plaintiff's lawyers didn't use it. Now you can't go to a trucking program Hard to and believe, not be, yeah. be looked. People didn't know it. People thought it didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, they just didn't know, you know? So yeah, it feels good. And, and it feels good because um, people are gracious enough to call me and email me and say, like you just did, that you made a difference in my client's life. That feels good. And I, and, and even more, I think that there are people, who, I, I think that there are people driving around right now on the roads that have no idea that the work that, and I include you and your firm in this too, because you guys have been staunch advocates for, for safety. Um, the work we do, the plaintiff's bar does. People like to laugh at us and call us names and say we're all a bunch of ambulance chasers. And you know, the sad part is some of us are. Right. And, and in some cases I probably have been. So I'm not trying to be holier than anybody, but at the people who do this right and for the right reason, the money will take care of itself. But making a difference there are people driving around right now who made it home because of something that you did or I did. And that's cool. And they don't even have any idea that that's why they made it home. Isn't that great? I think it is. A hundred percent. And you know, it's, it's amazing that you have people that you've hired to respond when you yourself are still so responsive. I mean, I remember I had a, it was like a shipper carrier issue and you were pulling up, the the carrier and finding out all the information online quickly in a response to an email when I just had a simple question, you know, so I thank you for that. And, and, it, and for us as younger lawyers, having, you know, you always want to find who are the lawyers you want to aspire to be and learn from. And there's, I think now for us as younger lawyers, there's a lot of resources. And, and as the plaintiff's lawyers, we do share. And, you know, all of the older lawyers that you could, you could hold all the information and keep it, you don't. And you share it with us and and, you know, we will, you know, it's almost like not passing the torch, but ensuring, like you said, that, you know, it will continue, you know, you're kind of fading back a little more, you know, not having to be so much in the forefront, but everyone obviously knows that the programs that you are, you know, one of the biggest. Um, what, what you're saying is true, though. I mean, look, all I ever ask of anybody else is be prepared to pay it forward. Right. Yeah. And the, there are those of us on the plaintiff's bar who don't share. You won't find them and the leadership of the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys, because as soon as it comes to my attention that they're not sharing, uh, it's not that they get blackballed, they just don't get invited right. any longer, you know? And and, um, and so, you know, it's about ri rising the tide, whatever that saying is. And you guys are you guys are a big part of that too. And, and, and you know, I mean, you guys do share it forward and I appreciate, that's why I'm here. I mean, I've, yeah. um, I get lots of invitations to speak and, and be on podcasts and things like that. And I do accept a lot of them, but I don't accept all of them. And I would not accept it for somebody who wasn't like you guys who are out there trying to do this thing called the practice of law the right way. Right. Oh, we appreciate that. Yeah, we think so. Uh, it's you guys know the people in your community who aren't and still yet they come up with a big case every now and then. And you go, golly, you know, yeah. I, I hate, I hate that that happened to somebody and I hate for the experience that that client is about to have. 
Joe, I, I want to ask you this question because a lot of times, like being a lawyer, you have to have the mental resolve to continue the fight, right? So, and a lot of times in, in, you know, in appeals, we've, Jordan and myself, we have gone to trial, lost, then won on appeal and got a new trial. And, and even then to mentally prepare to do it again, you know, can take a lot. But conversely, you, you had a recent case where you got a great result for a woman um, against the MARTA uh, bus in, in Atlanta. Yeah, I think it was a $25 million verdict. That verdict that you got, you being successful, that was taken away on appeal. And then it comes back and you kind of got to start, you know, from square one. And so what I want to know is like, how is this, you know, obviously retrying a case is not something that happens all the time or having to relitigate and start again. But how do you mentally prepare when those situations arise, you know, dealing with that as, as a lawyer? Well, I don't know that you can uh, honestly prepare in advance for it. It just, um, you, you're, you're right. It takes resolve. It's, um, I've been in a, in a lot of those, you know, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. And, and uh, I've been in a lot of those situations where we've had to retry cases where we've had, because for whatever reason, we've lost the first time and then get a, get a new trial. We've won the first time and they get a new trial. We've, um, we've hung the first time and then we have to go back and do it again. Uh, you know, any one of these, you know, sort of circumstances, that case that you're, um, talking about uh, the, that Marta case um, was a, it was a particularly bitter pill for a couple of reasons. One um, was the case was very cleanly tried uh, there. We did not think that there were any legitimate um, appellate issues in the case. And, and the case got reversed on an issue uh, that was an issue of I don't even know if it's called first impression. I mean, they, the, the court of appeals just essentially changed the rule um, and said that um, before the judge could give an instruction on, on spoliation of evidence, which in, in that case was a portion of the video tape of the incident disappeared. There was a portion before and a portion after, but there was a portion that just disappeared. Um, and the court held, uh, held a, hearing, you know, part of the jury instruction, you know, conference involved discussions about whether that charge would be given. And ultimately the judge agreed to give the charge. The court of appeals said that the judge had to have a separate evidentiary hearing and make conclusions of fact uh, before giving that, that instruction, which is not Georgia law, never has been Georgia law. But I think, I think what really happened is the unfortunate truth around the country is when you get a big, big result that the courts don't like, they look for an opportunity to take it away from you. Yeah. Um, well, that case involved a woman who had been, uh, who had had a very serious brain injury that rendered her not conscious ever. She was in a coma, essentially. And um, she hung on all the way through the trial of that case. And somehow it's almost like she knew uh, we got through it. We got it. We got um we got justice in a, in a case that was tough as hell to get. It was a zero offer case. And um, the jury awarded us basically what we asked for. We asked for $25 million and um, I think a 10% um, comparative fault against our client. And I think they gave us $25 million less a 20% um, reduction for comparative fault. 
but then the, the court of appeals took it away. And by the, by that time that it was, tr it was uh, ready for retrial, our client was, was uh, no longer on this earth. So we were left then with a very different case. Yeah. Um, so I've had that happen multiple times. I mean, different in different ways. And I don't know that you can really prepare for it. I think when it happens, you have to find a new resolve. You guys have been there too, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. You have to look at it. And by the way, there, there are times, there's one that I can think of where I said, you know what, we're not going to redo it. Um, because you meet with the client, and you just decide, you know, it was too much the first time. And I think that one of the things we have to remember is that as the advocate is that we have to ultimately do the bidding of our client. Right. And it, for some clients, it's too much to ask them to go through it again. Yeah. Uh, and so the case gets resolved, settled, or whatever the case may be. You know, John's question kind of probes like mental fortitude and preparedness, but I know something that, you know, has been personal to you and you promoted for the past couple of years is like the physical fitness side of it, putting your body physically in the best position, uh, you know, to be the best version of yourself. And I know that's something that John takes extreme pride in over the past couple of years with diet and exercise. And that's something you've talked about. Maybe you can share a little bit about how you feel like that's kind of changed, you know, your ability to, to manage the stress of practicing. And well, I think it has, I mean, a, a long time ago in my, in my youth, I've fashioned myself a, um, uh, you know, somewhat of an athlete. I was, I guess, an athlete. I was a fighter back in my teen years and early twenties. And then, you know, through my law enforcement career. And then what happens is you get into the practice of law. And especially, you know, if your practice becomes national, you're on airplanes, you know, two or three times a week, you're eating on West coast time, you know, high fat meals at, you know, 11 o'clock at night in, in LA, <laughs> you know, it's two o'clock in the morning here. And I got, I was in terrible shape. And a few years ago, just before the COVID stuff hit, I made a commitment that I, I really feel like it was a life and death kind of a decision for me. So I was checking my, 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 um, my uh, phone here. Cause so today is day 894 that I have not missed on the Peloton bike or some bike. When I travel, sometimes I can't find a Peloton. So I, I ride whatever bike I can find and I just put the Peloton app on but 894 days in a row without missing, that's that that includes times when I've had COVID, when I felt like crap, when I've not wanted to, when I've um, you know snuck it in at 11:30 at night. It's been through a couple of trials. Um, you know, it's hard when you're in the middle of trial to go say, "Hey, I got to take a break and go ride a bike for 30 minutes." And they go, "What the, you know, yeah. got you to do right now?" And you go, yeah, well, I, I'm not blowing this streak because if I ever blow this streak, the next streak people hear about is 894 days in a row where I've sat on my ass. Yeah. And so it is important and it does it does make a difference. Um, it This is a hard people who don't know what we do. They think it's easy. And there are some people who somehow make it easy. I don't know. Or at least it's my impression. But the people who actually try cases, it ain't easy. You know, you build cases, you take them very personally. You become, you become a, you become the champion or the failed champion for somebody else. You know, like it's like bad enough if I lose something for me, but if I lose something for somebody else, you know, I'm never getting over that. I'm, I'm always gonna kick myself. I mean, I don't sleep well because 
I cross-examined people in cases that I've lost years ago in the middle of the night, wishing I'd done it differently. Yeah. You know, so, it, it, but I think health is very important as is mental health, as is uh, for any young person in our field, I would say, don't forget the people who are the closest to you. Don't forget your kids. You don't forget your spouse. Um, don't forget your parents if you're still lucky enough to have them. Mm -hmm. You know, don't don't fall into that trap of saying someday I will make up for this yeah. because because um, there's like everything there's a country western there's a country song to address it and it, you know the, the country song that's out now I can't remember what it's called but it says something like you know you can always put a ring on that finger until you can't mm -hmm. you can always go fishing with your dad until you can't mm -hmm. and um, there's something very true about that yeah. but we sacrifice ourselves and our relationships and our health for our cases and our clients and that's um, part part of what we signed up for when we what, do this. Wow, 894 days. That's really impressive. Um, and I know what's amazing about that is that what you think that doesn't help you in the practice of law, it does. Because we talked about mental fortitude. I mean, you're like... I'm, excuse my French, I'm dragging ass. I don't want to get up. I don't want to get on the bike and you do it anyways. And then once you get that, once you get going those first five minutes, you're glad you're there and, and you, you carries it. That's so true. It's yeah. so true. And there's so many times you feel like I just don't want to do it today. And you get on and you just, okay, I'm just going to do five minutes. Yeah. And, and, and I you would, don't do. And I remember, do your, yeah, well, I was with Jordan. So, so I got into like ultra marathon running and, and so I run a lot. And sometimes I'm better than I should be. But when, when I was really training for my first event, I remember it was myself, Jordan, and an associate at the time. We, we went to Atlanta. I forget what we had. We had some kind of work up there. But, you know, we, we check in the hotel. It was cold outside. And I started throwing on sweatpants, running shoes. They're like, what are you going to do? I was like, I got to put in six miles real quick. You know, so I just left the hotel. I'm in Buckhead and just started running. I was like, I'll just run three miles the one direction, turn around, run back. And had no idea where I was. And it was that, you know, doing that enables me when you hit those hard points and when you're you're tired, you don't want to do it. You know, like, I got to prep for this depot. Or I, I'm in trial. and I got to take this depot outside of trial after, you know, doing all of those things. You know, your mental preparedness from doing the physical activities helps you weather that storm. And it also, I mean, if you don't have to worry about, like, health and sleep and all those kind of things, it also can help you, you know, your, your mental thinking on your feet kind of thing. Um, I think, yeah, I wish I could get the sleep down. Like I got this, um, but I, I still struggle with sleep, but, but I, you know, I mean, it, what, what this has done for me is immeasurable. It's yeah. changed everything. It's changed my relationship with myself. Frankly, it's changed yeah. my relation. My, um, I mean, I have a cardiac condition, um, that, uh, kind of threw me off for years and years. And I mean, so I, I feel a you know, so it's not, people say you must love the Peloton. I go, no, we have a complicated relationship, but it's not really love. I mean, I, I tolerate it. It tolerates me, but I, it, it feels like a heart attack every time I ride, um, literally into my jaw, running down my arms, the whole nine yards, wow. but I do it anyway, you know, and, and um, it's. Um, if Joe Freed can find the time to do it, maybe. <laughs> Check well, yourself if you're out there struggling. on any pedestals. I don't belong on anybody's pedestal, but, but, um, but I do, I think what, what I'd tell anybody is what's more, which if you're like me and you're starting to maybe get a little, you know, gray hair and you, and you're thinking that 
working out means what you used to do when you were a teenager or 20s something, just let go of that. And it's, yeah. it's what's, what's most important is consistency. And it can be 10 minutes a day. As long as it's a consistent 10 minutes a day, you're going to see results. Yeah. Uh, that's the reality. That's the crazy part is yeah, for years I made it bigger than it needed to be. To, to make an impact. And that, that would be my advice to folks trying to start in there is just make a 10 minute commitment. Yeah. You may choose to do more than that some days and, and, but just 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, Speaking of a time commitment, I wish I could keep you here all day selfishly because I've thoroughly enjoyed this, but I know John and I both want to be respectful of your time. Um, I think it's probably impossible not to find you if somebody tried, but if there's any particular uh, methods or channels you prefer to receive communication with, feel free to, to share with the listeners now as we kind of bring this thing home. Yeah, just, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm available a number of ways. Um, my, my office will find me if, if you're, if you need me, uh, just, just give me a call or shoot me an email, um, you know, and, and you'll get a response. I'm, I, I pride myself on being responsive. Yeah, I can vouch for that. No Me question too. about it. Me too. Well, Joe, on behalf of everybody out there listening, and definitely John and I personally, thank you so much. This has been tremendously insightful and helpful, and I think our listeners will get a ton out of it. So thank you very much. Well, yeah. th thanks, Jordan, and thanks, John, for having me. And please keep up the good work that you guys are doing. And uh, if I can ever be of any help along the way, I'm a phone call away. Absolutely. Appreciate, Appreciate you guys. All right, thanks, Take guys. care, everybody. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.